If you would like to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers will bring you a Bible. You can follow along with us. And when you're finished with it, you can just put it in the pew when you're done. Good to see you here on this holiday weekend. For those of you who stuck around and for those of you who traveled in, I'm glad you made it here this morning. We are going to finish the book of 1 John. This is it this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about the mission of God. And then two weeks from today, we're going to jump into a new book, Malachi. Your favorite book, Malachi. Yep. So let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. You know, I was watching an award show last Sunday, and one of the, the people who won an award, they got up there, and I guess they are just doing some promotional thing, and they said, come see a show on Broadway, and it will change your life forever. And I thought, oh, come on. it change your life forever. I mean, you might enjoy a play or a musical, but it's not going to change your life forever. I mean, come on. But, you know... I, I do think it's possible that open up the word and reading it, that this morning something could come alive in your heart, in your, in your life, that really could change your life forever, like for real, that is totally realistic and possible. So um, let's have that expectation this morning. Is that all right? Let's, let's have that expectation that, yeah, it could be changed forever. So let, let's stand up and read. 1 John, finish it off here, chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You may be seated. What if you could live in this world with complete confidence that the gospel is true? 
I mean, like, really, you believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. Through repentance and faith, you are forgiven. You have an eternal relationship with God that comes with all the abundant blessings. And and what if you actually believe that with such passion mixed with just an overriding confidence that you not only knew it intellectually, but you really knew it in your heart, your mind, you're about to explode, that you know the gospel's true. I mean, is it even possible to live that way? Like, really, come on. Do you think you can really live with a lot of confidence and knowledge and certainty of the truth of the gospel? Can, can somebody even live that way? Well, that's what John wants for his readers. That's what our Father in Heaven wants for all of us. He wants us to have full-blown assurance that the gospel is real. He wants us really to believe it, like for real. But like John's readers, his church, like us, we struggle with assurance. We struggle with confidence. And the reason why we struggle is because of problems. If you were in John's church, you would probably struggle also with what they're struggling with. False teachers have invaded their church. Don't just think, oh, false teachers, false doctrine, they left. Well, yes, they did leave, but they took some people with them. So imagine our church, we have friends, our kids play with each other, with other families' kids, and then then this happens, false doctrine comes in, they start believing lies, false teachers leave, families and individuals and singles follow after them, and everything is just messed up and split, and it is just a mess, and the church is just left in pieces. And when that happens, when hard things happen on this earth, it causes them in this church to doubt spiritual realities. And the same happens to us. Like, I just brought Jay Erickson up here. He and his wife, Melissa, and their two boys, he mentioned we're living in Uzbekistan. And on a three to five day notice from the government, they got kicked out of the country. I mean, we just hear that and we think, man, that's kind of a bummer. But can you imagine that happening to you? Like, from now, you got to leave your home behind that you own. You have to get rid of your stuff. You got you to bail. Like, h- how would you react if your world was turned upside down? And how does it, you, you've experienced something similar where your world has gone the different direction of your expectations, right? We, we all have that. We all have these hard times where our life was stable and then it started shaking a bit and then boom, we're like, whoa. How do you react when hard things happen to you on this earth? Well, a lot of the ways we commonly react is we start to doubt spiritual realities. We start to doubt whether the gospel is true. We start to doubt whether the gospel has any practical implications for any parts of our life because things are really shaking up a lot. John knows this. God knows this. And that's why John wrote this letter, and he's writing at the very end now to give his church that's left from all the damage absolute confidence in the gospel, absolute certainty in the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. And he's going to finish this letter with repeating over and over again the word no. He wants them to know things. He wants them to have certainty And as we finish this letter, we're going to see it about five times. These five certainties he keeps coming back to to give them knowledge, certainty, 
confidence in the gospel. And I believe that's what God wants for us. I mean, without a doubt, that's what God wants for us this morning. He wants us to have confidence and certainty in the gospel of Jesus. So let's look at these five certainties. He lays them out. They're pretty clear. So let's start with the first certainty. It's in verse 13. It's the certainty of eternal life. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Those of you in here who have believed in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've put your faith in Christ, you can know for sure that you have an eternal relationship with God. You can have confidence not only about your future when you die, but you can have confidence that your eternal life with the Father begins now. You ever heard that before? What does it mean when someone says, eternal life begins now? Like, really? How is that possible? But you know the way the Bible defines eternal life? It defines eternal life with a relationship with the Father and a relationship with the Son. For example, let me throw this up for you. This is John 17, 3. That's what it says. Jesus says this. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So those who believe in Jesus can have a certainty that they have eternal life now, and it will last forever. Some of you grew up in certain religious, maybe even Christian traditions, where it would seem a little arrogant or presumptuous to say, I know for sure, absolutely, that I'm going to heaven when when I die, right? Right? Some of you grew up in those backgrounds that you were never to assume that you knew for sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. You would say things like, when I die, I hope I go to heaven. I'm not going to ask a show of hands. When I die, I hope I make it into heaven. And and that even sounds humble, right? That's not biblical. John says, I'm writing this to you so you can know for sure absolute confidence that you have a relationship with God and when you die, you will go to heaven. You can know that absolutely for sure because it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with Jesus because it says there, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. It's not arrogant to say I'm a complete sinner. I've been saved through not my righteous record, but for the righteous record of Jesus Christ. I'm not saved because it has to do with me and my awesomeness. It has to do with Jesus Christ and his perfection. So you can have confidence, you can have certainty that you have a relationship with God and when you die, you will go to heaven because it's not about you. It's about you repenting and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And you can have confidence. You can know that you have eternal life in his name. And you need to keep coming back to this. You need to keep coming back to this because what's going to happen in your life as it has happened already is hard things will happen to you and you will start to doubt whether you're a Christian or not. You'll start to doubt whether you have eternal salvation or not. You'll start to wonder when you die if you're going to go to heaven. And you'll start to doubt whether you're saved or not. Your emotions sometimes can be all over the place during hard times, especially for those of you who have a very sensitive conscience. Some of you are very sensitive and you sin and you think you're, you're, you're lost forever. You, you know who you are. And that's why you need to keep pressing home this truth that you can know 
that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ and him alone. Keep pressing that truth home to your heart and your head. Keep pushing in and closer and closer to the gospel that you can know with certainty that you have eternal life that begins right now and lasts forever through Jesus. So that's something you can know for sure. Well, John's not done. He, he just keeps going. He moves on from the certainty of eternal life to the certainty of answered prayer. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Uh, talking about ramping up some confidence here. D- did you even catch what that said? He's saying, you can come and pray to your father. And you can have confidence that he's going to hear you. And guess what? He's not only going to hear you, but he's going to give you the answer to your prayer. Don't look at me so skeptical. Come on now. Do you believe that? That you can approach your father, you can pray, for sure he'll hear you, and he will answer. And you're like, yeah, but what's the catch? There's always a catch in the Bible, right? There's always some catch. Well, if you want to say the catch, I mean, we're we're talking about relationship with the Father. I don't don't think it's a catch. But one of the things it says earlier in John is that when you pray and you ask for anything, you will receive it. And one of the conditions of you receiving it is that you're keeping his commands. You're living a life of holiness. You're walking with him. You're in line with his will. And that's the thing that's marked out here. Did you see it? It's in verse 14. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That when we pray rooted in his revealed will, he hears us. And if you think that's too limited, you think that restricts your prayer too much, come on now. Here's God's revealed will in his word. Is this really restrictive? There is so much in here about our relationship with our Father that touches so many areas of our life. We can know his will. We can pray in line with his will. And we know that when we pray in line with his will, he hears us. And the Bible says, and you know you have what you've asked. About 10 days ago, I was following this uh, couple trying to adopt a three-year-old child they um, had this child presented to them they were so excited about adopting this child but they were a a few thousand dollars short and be able to adopt because adoption is very expensive and they were trying to get and they were like we have a deadline if we don't have this money come in in the next what five days we just can't do it and so they, they, they cried out to God let me ask you something Do we know from God's word that it is his will for Christians to care for orphans during their time of need? Do we know that for sure? Yes, we do. And can it be deduced that one of the ways that Christians can care for orphans is through adoption, right? And we say, yeah, yeah, that's true. So they they cried out, they prayed in line with God's will. And so last Sunday... They did a, a fundraiser, like a, a bake sale. You're like, man, a bake sale is not going to bring in a lot of money. Well, they did this bake sale, and they were, uh, I guess, selling some of their goods, and people were, like, buying pies for 225 bucks. That's a good pie. 
And people were paying $80 for a half dozen cookies. And by the time their fundraiser was over, God doubled the amount they needed. And now they're proceeding with the adoption. They prayed according to God's will, and God answered. But you know that you've done the same thing. You've prayed according to his will, revealed in his word, and he didn't answer. Well, he answered, but he didn't answer the way you wanted him to answer, right? And I would say that one of the number one reasons why so many of us are so prayerless is because we believe we prayed according to God's will, and he didn't answer. And it caused us to doubt spiritual realities. I mean, come on. Prayerlessness in our lives is, is a great indi- indicator that we don't have much confidence in the reality that he's going to hear us and act. Right? So what do you do when you pray according to his will? It's in his word. You pray it, and then there's no, there's no answer, or it's a different answer. And you, what, do you, what do you do then? Well, for starters, I think it'd be really wise to go through the Bible and find uh, people who have prayed to God according to his will, and he didn't answer the way they prayed. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, he, three times, take this thorn away from me. God's like, my grace is sufficient for you. So when we keep pressing into God according to his will and he's not answering us, I, I, I think what we, we need to do is say, okay, God, you are God of this universe. I think and believe I'm praying in line with your will that's revealed in your word, but if you are doing something else that I cannot see for your glory and for my good, I will submit to you. But whatever you do, my brothers and sisters, do not stop praying. Don't stop praying. Try to understand his will as best you can and, and keep pressing in. And, and, and I hate it when I come to verses like this that, that can be very exciting and then we, we just get so doubtful. We stop praying when this should be some of the most exciting verses in the Bible that we can keep pressing in to God. He's going to hear us and he, he's going to act. Let's bring back some of that, that childlikeness in us. We're pressing into his will, and if he doesn't answer the way we've asked, we've just got to trust him that he's doing something beyond what we can see. But John gives a very specific answer on how he wants us to pray according to God's will. Look at these complicated verses in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What does that mean? mean, It's a very complicated passage. People have struggled for years about this, and people are divided over what this means and so let's just jump right in and ask the question what is sin that leads to death this is why i think it is so helpful to preach through books of the bible if you're just if you're just wandering around saying well let me just preach on hard passages you then you you, you can miss a lot of the context the context of first john helps us understand 
this verse here? What is the sin that, that leads to death? I don't think it's one particular sin. I think it fits within the context of what the book's been talking about. It's been talking about false teachers who have skewed the person of Jesus Christ, who are consumed in worldliness, and who do not love their brothers or sisters in the Lord because they are not Christians. And I believe that he's telling the church, hey, I'm not saying to pray about that. Because you don't want to come to God and say, God, I know those false teachers who've just been with us are marring your name. They don't love us and they're very worldly, but save them anyway. Just kind of, even though they're unrepentant, save them anyway. And John's saying, I'm not saying you should pray about that. It's not saying that we, we can't pray for unbelievers ever. He's not saying that. He's not forbidden prayer for them. He's not commanded them not to pray. But you're going to have to decide. There comes perhaps some point in time in your life with someone you know who, you, who has been against the gospel antagonistically like these false teachers, consumed in worldliness, is a God-hater and lacking in love. And there may come a time where but led by the Spirit, you just felt inside of you that you're done. You've interceded for them for years. But you feel the Spirit leading you? No. It's time to move on. Not saying that's, I don't know, that's, that's between you and God, but just maybe there's a time where John says, I'm not saying to pray about that. Well, who exactly does John want us to pray for? Well, he specifically says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. He's talking about believers. As we're in the body of Christ, there are people that you, that you live with, that in your family, that are your friends, that are in the church, that are believers, that me, that we will be distracted by sin and lured into sin. And he's saying, pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for them. Yes, we should confront one another when we're in sin, right? But we should also pray for one another. Remember Jesus, uh, he confronted Peter. And he, when Peter was, he told Peter that he's going to deny him. And as Jesus was praying for Peter before he prophesied the denials, it said this in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. This is what Jesus said. It says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's a good example of Jesus praying for another believer. We want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So basically the certainty here is we have confidence in answered prayer. Confidence that when we go to God, he hears us. Confidence when we go to God, he's going to answer according to his will. And it's just not about us. It's also praying for others, even those who stray. So we have the certainty of eternal life, certainty of answered prayer, and look at the next certainty, certainty of victory. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not harm him. 
Now, this verse doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. We know from 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, yes, Christians still fall into sin, but what Christians do is they repent and they ask for forgiveness. And what he's talking about here is habitual sin, the act of continual rebellion against God with no desire to repent, no desire to change, And he is basically saying, if you are a Christian, that means you've been born of God. If you've been born of God, you will not live in this way. And not only that, all those who have been born of God not only walk with Jesus, but they are protected from the evil one by Jesus. Which means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been transferred from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. And as from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and as you are the king of light there will be no switchbacks there'll be no going back Jesus will hold you he'll keep you in the kingdom of light Satan can't come back and say no I'm going to be your father again none of that there will be protection from Jesus Christ but what makes this truth challenging if I tell you this morning that we have victory over sin what tends to make it challenging is that sometimes the temptations that we face in life I'm sure the temptations that John's church was facing is that sometimes the temptation seems so great that we feel like we're going to slip back that we're going to go back that we're going to dabble and we, we, we look up to God and we go God uh, I thought you were supposed to protect me I thought I was born again. I thought I had these new affections for you. Then how come I am being pulled back in the other direction? God, it's impossible. I'm, I'm now going to bail. But we know that even though Jesus defeated Satan in the decisive victory on the cross, there's still a war that's going on. And as there's still a war that is going on, Did you know that you actually play a part? Christian sanctification is just not all about, God, you do it. It's not all about, well, I'm born again, and I'm protected from the evil ones, so I'm just going to be holy. Did you know that you can actually take, and you must take, action? Inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, empowered by him, you actually take action in your growth in Jesus. And I think John is getting at this on the way he ends his book. Don't you love that ending in verse 21? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Isn't that great? I love that. I should sign off all my letters like that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But it's appropriate for his church because the false teachers are promoting worldliness. They're promoting false doctrine. They're promoting lack of love. And they're promoting a lot of different idols that the church could be tempted to run after. And so victory is not just a protection from Jesus, not just being born again, but it's also keeping yourselves from idols. And, and I know many of you could say, come, Pastor, come on in my house. I have no idols on my mantle. And, and idols, even during John's time, is not talking about little statues all the time. When we talk about idols, we talk about anything that's a God substitute in your life. And the easy things to say, well, well, money and porn and drugs, that's, those are idols. Well, those are easy to spot. But did you know that even good things can be idols? Do you know that men and women can be idols? Maybe you're in a dating relationship. And I just want to tell you, women make terrible idols. 
men make horrible gods. But sometimes when we're getting into relationship, you think, they're my God. And if they don't come through for me, I'm devastated. And if you ever have kids, you watch this. You will start to think, kids, these kids are my idols. And the way you can turn your kids into your idols is because you can make the success of your kid your idol. I was listening to a guy this week. He was talking about how he created his 13-year-old boy into an idol. Because his 13-year-old boy was just this awesome pitcher in baseball. I mean, he thought, man, my son is going to go to the major leagues. And, and one day his son called him and said, Dad, I broke my finger. And it, it, and it really hurt. And he was crying on the phone. And, and, and you know, his dad, instead of being compassionate, got so angry because his son was skateboarding across railroad tracks. You know, don't try that. Skateboarding across railroad tracks, fell, broke his finger. And so the dad goes and picks up the son where he's, ever, he's at. He needs to be taken to the hospital. And he's so angry that he makes his wife take his boy to the hospital. At a time where he needs to be compassionate, he's angry. Why? Well, his idol got broken. Did you see how that works? We'd say, I really want victory over my sin of anger. I really struggle with anger in my life. Well, you know what you should look for? Where is there an idol? Try an idol in there somewhere. So if we talk about the victory of Jesus and being protected from evil and being born again, John also says, keep yourself from idols. And make sure God is God and no other substitute. It's a great book. Let's keep going. This is great. All right. Victory over sin. Certainty of victory. Certainty of eternal life. Certainty of answered prayer. The fourth thing is, in verse 19, the certainty that we are children of God. Verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are from God. We're his children. We belong to him. But look at this imagery. This is crazy. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I, when you think about Satan running around this world, you, you would think everybody would go, ah, that's Satan. Let's run that way. Ah, here he comes. Let's go over here. Ah, Satan. But it says no. They're like, oh, Satan, so good to see you again. Let me just hang out with you. Let me just lie in your, in your, in your embrace. That's the picture of the world. That's the picture of the systems of this world, the people of this world. They're lying in the embrace of Satan, not running away, comfortable with him. But believers do not lie in the embrace of Satan. Believers, believers lie in the embrace of our Savior, Jesus. And if it's true that we have this distinction that we are supposed to be not lying in the embrace of Satan, but lying in the embrace of our Savior, I, I am wondering if that is true, and if you believe that is true, are there observable differences in your life from unbelievers? Is there a distinction between you, who say you believe, and those who say they don't believe? Is there any observable difference? Are your goals 
and priorities any different? You see, about uh, six, six and a half years ago when I first came here, like right about now, I would be screaming and yelling at you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, come on, how can you live that way? Because I didn't know you very well. But now that I'm getting to know you, I'm not going to scream at you as much because I like you, all right? I'll scream at you sometimes for those of you I don't know, but the ones I know, I like you. And you know what happens? I get very sad. I get very sad when I, when I see you making choices in your life and I go, man, I don't think that's what it really looks like to follow Jesus. I get sad when your goals are the same as unbelievers. I get sad when you're spending your money the exact same way unbelievers do. I get sad when you're making the same decisions with your time as unbelievers. I, I just, I get really sad. And I really wonder, does it, is there any... Is there really ever going to be any observable difference between us and unbelievers? Are just going to be this, we just kind of all mesh together and we'll show up to church occasionally. Just a little church going thrown in. That just makes me sad because you think, really, we've been redeemed, we're saved, we're now children of God, but you really can't tell. You just can't tell a, a distinction or a difference. Really? Are you reading? I'm not, not going to get mad, but are you reading the same book? Are you? There really seems like there should be a distinction between those who are lying in the brace of a Savior and those who are lying in the brace of Satan. That's why I want to have a certainty that we are children of God and that will express itself in observable differences in the world. Okay, the last one, the last certainty. The certainty of the truth of Jesus. Look at verse 20. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Oh, and that great Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal life. I've been talking about that the whole time. That's the issue the false teachers have with. They don't believe that Jesus eternally existed. They don't believe he was manifested in the flesh. And what we're saying here is, no, Jesus came to this world in the embrace of Satan. He's given us understanding so that we can know him who is true. The Father and Jesus is true God, and he is eternal life. And it's not just saying, well, he is true as opposed to what is false. That is partly it. But he's saying he is real. John started out this gospel and saying, hey, that which was from the beginning, the internal existence of Jesus, he is showing up on this earth and we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. He is real, real, real. And we're just proclaiming it to you that you can know that he is real. And I, I think on Sunday morning during church when we're in the word, we can, we can believe that this is true, this is real, he is real, he is God. But when we go, and it's, it's not our fault, it's not our fault, but when we go and live in our world, probably a world very similar to the time uh, of John's um, writing, we have people that we go to work with, go to school with, people that we love, people who are neighbors, who are of different faiths than us. Some of you have very good friends who are, are Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and we love them and they love us. They are so kind to us and they fervently believe their religion. Just as 
fervent as we believe the gospel of Jesus. And after a while, you may be thinking, well, man, they're really into their religion. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it is kind of all the same. Maybe, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to believe in. When, when you live in a pluralistic culture like this, things that you're not even aware of can be hitting you all the time. And it can make you doubt and have uh, uncertainty about the truth of Jesus. And when, and when that, that happens to me, and, and it does happen to me when I'm walking around talking to people of different faiths. When that happens to me, well, I mean, I can go ahead and investigate their religion and look at all the history and things like that. But when it happens to me, what helps me the most is I keep saying, yeah, but who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I keep coming back to the uniqueness of Jesus. He is eternal life. He is God. There is no other way of salvation outside of him. Yes, because that's what Jesus said. But really, there's no other way to be saved. Who is unique like Jesus? And I keep pressing to myself the truth of Jesus' home. He's the one that gave me understanding. He's the one that gave me life. I'm going to keep pressing into him. And, and I, I really believe it's true. God if you're a child of God here this morning, he wants you to have confidence in the gospel. He wants you to believe that he is real, the truth of Jesus is real, his death and resurrection real, his life real. He will answer prayer as real. We can have victory over sin. That is, that is real. He really wants us to believe that we can know these things with certainty. And when we start to have doubts... We, can, we want to keep preaching the truth to ourselves, keep presenting the person, the uniqueness of Jesus to us. But one of the ways that we want to keep pressing the truth home is that we want to do this to each other. One of the most scariest things is to have a believer outside of fellowship with other believers because you need someone to keep presenting the gospel to you over and over again. You need that. I need that. I need that. And one of the ways we're going to do that, you, I've been talking about this all summer, is in, in two weeks from today, we're, we're starting our ethos communities. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the ethos communities, basically they're going to be confidence-building groups, building confidence in the gospel. We're going to get together to pray, get together to fellowship, get together to discuss God's word, and get together to go out on mission. And we want to build confidence in the gospel because from time to time, we really doubt what's going on. We doubt the truth of the gospel and we want to press it home to one another. So let's just say someone comes into one of our ethos communities. It's a believer and she says, man, I, am, I really am having a problem with guys. I move from boyfriend to boyfriend. I don't want to do that, but I just feel like, okay, I don't have a boyfriend now. I got to go on and find an ex-boyfriend. What would it mean to press home the gospel to her? It would mean to say, hey, you have a father who loves you completely through Jesus. So much so that he sent his son to die for you. You don't need to keep hopping from man to man looking for love. You have unconditional love by your Father through Jesus. And that's just an example of many ways we can press the gospel home to one another, to our hearts and the things we struggle with, things we, we don't believe. 
And, and what's going to be very special, about, not just about the ethos communion, but what we're going to do right now in the, in the Lord's Supper, as you take it today, I'm going to ask you to pick a particular area of your life where you're not believing the gospel. Pick a particular area where you're not believing it and, and press home the truth to your heart right now as you, as you take the Lord's Supper. Maybe, you, maybe you're, you're struggling with, with e- eternal life. You think, you know, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. And, and when you take communion this morning, think about his blood was spilled for me to give me eternal salvation. And maybe you're struggling with, with unanswered prayer. And as you take the Lord's Supper, think to yourself, I have direct access to the Father, to the crucified Son. Whatever your area is needed, when you take communion this morning, just press home the truth of the gospel. Maybe you're struggling with victory over sin. And you come to a time of repentance and say, yes, through his death, there is real victory over sin. Just just press it home and whatever's going on in your life, press home the truth of the gospel. And not only are we going to take communion, but maybe you need someone to pray for you. Uh, we've been doing this for years. We have elders uh, lay hands on people and anoint them with oil. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need uh, prayers for believing the truth of the gospel. We're going to be spread throughout here. We're going to pray for one another. This is going to be a pretty special day starting right now. We can press home the truth of the gospel through communion and also have someone else pray for you if that's what you would like. Well, let's, let's just go to the time a prayer right now and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. Lord, there are so many areas that we fail to believe and we, we want to believe, help our unbelief. And I just ask as, as we take a communion that, that something significant would happen. So remember your death for us and proclaim it until you come again, I, I just ask that you would do something significant in building confidence in us now, confidence in the gospel, confidence in the finished work of Jesus. Lord, we're just, we're just asking you, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that he hears us. We know that we have what we've asked of him. So right now we, we draw near to you, Lord, and we just ask that you would meet us here. Meet us here that we would see that we, how real you are, that we would know you. We know that is your will. You want us to know that we have eternal life in your name. May you impress that upon us now during this time of communion. In Christ's name, amen.